my goal setting technique is I am. It's the first thing Dr. Hill and I agreed on when we started working together. I am. I don't set goals. I claim goals. Welcome to the Million Dollar Speaker Podcast. Hi, I'm RV Robinson, and I'm the master speaker trainer, international speaker, and author of Speak Up, Get Clients, and the host of the Million Dollar Speaker Podcast, where we talk about what makes a person, a million dollar speaker? How do we reach a million people? And how do we make a million dollars doing it? And I have a very special guest today who is an experienced speaker, an experienced sales professional. And I'm so excited to have him on the show today. And that is Mr. Ben Gay Third. Ben David Third has been called a legend, a living legend in the sales world. After 50 plus years in professional selling, he has been the number one salesperson in every organization in which he worked. At age 25, he was president of what was then the world's largest direct sales networking marketing company, having been personally trained by fellow sales legends, Jay Douglas Edwards, Dr. Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, William Penn Patrick, Zig Ziglar, and many other sales giants. One of the most famous, popular, and powerful sales trainers in the world, Ben now writes, publishes, and produces The Closers. It's a series of books, audio, video, newsletters, teletraining, and live seminars, a series that is considered to be the foundation of professional selling. Ben was the founder and is the current executive director of the National Association of Professional Salespeople. Ben and his lovely wife, Gigi, live near Lake Tahoe in a little northern California town of Placerville, where the California gold rush began. So help me welcome Mr. Ben the Third. Yay! Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm great. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. My today. pleasure. My pleasure and honor. All right. Great. So, so Ben, the first question that I want to ask you is what are the characteristics that make a million dollar speaker? Well, the characteristics and how you do there are people like my old friend Zig Ziglar who who came out of the womb laughing, giggling, and telling <laughs> funny stories. And so on, you know, he, he would have been a speaker if he'd been a plumber. Right, uh, right. He'd be speaking at plumbing conventions. Uh, that wasn't my nature. I had to learn. And what Zig taught me was practice, get up in front of groups and talk. In fact, in shortly after we became buddies and started working together, he used to say of me, Ben Gay would work a traffic accident. 
you know, wherever to, to quote from the Bible, wherever two or more people are gathered together, right. Ben Gay will appear and start speaking. <laughs> so Zig said exposure. You just, you've got to do it early and often and get comfortable doing it, et cetera, whether it's Toastmasters or being the MC at your Rotary Club or whatever, get started, get up in front of them. Because if, if, if we're looking for a certain personality type, we would rule out over half of all the great speakers I've ever heard. Uh, because what speaking really comes down to, if the delivery is entertaining enough so they don't fall asleep, is content. You got to have something to share with them. And that would be another thing I would add to the list of things to do is meet interesting people. You've got to have something to talk. One of the best speakers I've ever heard is our adopted son, Lamont Bowen. Oh, nice. He came to my public speaking class at the federal penitentiary at Lompoc and asked if he could join. Well, he was 19 years old, a drug dealer. Uh, doing, I think it was five years or something for drugs. High school dropout. That's assumed, assuming he ever dropped in. I never asked him. So I'm not sure, but I assume he spent some time in high school before he got thrown out. And his plan was to get up, uh, get out, serve out his term, stick up somebody, get four or five hundred dollars, and get back in the drug business. That was, it. and I was told that by a guy who said, "I'm gonna try and get him into your class." Mm -hmm. So that was our starting point. Uh, he came up to me one night as I was, as I had arrived and was about to go in. He said, Mr. Gay, can I come in? I said, certainly. He said, now, you're not ever going to make me speak. And I said, no, no, <laughs> I would never do that. So we walked in the side door. We're now in front of I don't know, 150, 200 inmates, but we're at the front of the room in front of the front row. And I said, gentlemen, we have a guest speaker tonight, first time in the class and so on. And I could, I had my hand on his shoulder. I could feel him tighten up. And, uh, and uh, I said, I promise him uh, I wouldn't have him speak tonight, but I, I just really think he would be good. And it would be good for him, ladies and gentlemen, Lamont Bowens. And uh, he taught Arby, I'm guessing five minutes. For those five minutes, he was as good as Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. I mean, the voice was there, the confidence was there, everything. But after five minutes, he stopped because that's all he had to say. <laughs> he had no content. You know, so you've got to build a, a reservoir of interesting people. I aggressively seek them. You you've, have some idea of the people that I've known and worked with. Yes. None, of, none of those were accidental. I sought them out. I learned from them. I took notes. Uh, the, uh, Zig and I joined the same business on the same day in Atlanta years ago. And uh, he used to do biscuits, fleas, and pump handles. That was his famous speech. Well, the biscuits didn't need any props and the fleas didn't. He, he told the story. But the pump handle, he insisted on dragging this old, like you'd see at a farm. Right. Pump old fashioned pump, yeah. It, yeah. And, uh, and he had a real one. It wasn't yet aluminum. I, later, I talked to him about getting an aluminum one. But it was a real steel one, I guess, heavy. And I said to him, uh, he was complaining about dragging it in. And, and it, he didn't like to be seen dragging things when he was going to be the speaker. And so I said, well, I'll carry him for you. 
he was 18 years older. Zig was in the Navy the day I was born. Oh, dear. <laughs> a little spread in age. I said, I, I don't have any image to protect. I'll carry the pump handle in exchange for dinner whenever we're doing a seminar or you're doing a seminar. Uh, front row, the right to take notes. And then after the talk, uh, ask questions. He said, deal. So I probably carried, I'm guessing that I probably carried that pump into 50 or 60 rooms before even before I was ready to stand up. And then I started introducing him. Oh my then, goodness. Then the introduction got longer and longer and longer until finally we agreed that I should be doing my own stuff. But, uh, and I'd stolen most of his by then anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't much left for him to do. Uh, but but that was experience and get around people, study the greats who are already doing it. And right. in my case, it was Zig, and then rather quickly, it was J. Douglas Edwards and Og Mandino and Earl Nightingale and all the people I was fortunate enough to hang out with. And in every way, if you saw me in a room, in fact, the first time you and I met was in a meeting room. If I wasn't speaking, I was seated somewhere with a legal pad in front of me. I take right. notes. Right. I'm I'm still learning. So take action, get rolling, print up your cards that say you're a speaker, you know, professional speaker or something. So when you tell somebody you're a speaker, even if maybe technically that's Not a good yet. stretch, yeah, hand right. them the card. I'm a speaker and know your rate that you're going to ask in the beginning. Right. You know, right. Well, what would it take for you to come speak to my group? $500. Your value. Whatever, whatever it is, you know have your cards and uh, a one sheet rather quickly after that and have a rate set in your mind and decide you are a professional speaker. I am a professional speaker. I never went to Dale Carnegie uh, public speaking class. I was just around people and watched them. Right. I love, I just want to recap because you said so many brilliant things. Uh, so some of the attributes that I caught is, is again, standing up consistently and speaking, um, you know, giving your great, giving great content, your best content. And I always share with people your latest content, not something old, you know, that's real mm -hmm. old, but the latest and greatest content and then study the greats. I love that. That's a million dollar idea right there. Study the greats take copious notes, be a student, carry business cards, uh, say you're a speaker, know what your rate is, have a speaker one sheet and make that decision that you're a speaker, whether or not you feel like you're a speaker. Right. Yet. So those are all great ideas. And one thing I want to ask, I mean, you've shared the stage with so many powerful speakers icons, great speakers. Uh, tell us like who is one of the, the most exciting, you know, memorable speakers that you have uh, shared the stage with? Well, we've already talked about several or mentioned their names. Uh, Zig, yeah. of course, was, Zig would have made a good lounge act, a comedian <laughs> or whatever. You know, he's known as a salesman, but selling yeah. really wasn't his strong suit. Storytelling was. So Zig was good. I never, if Zig was on, I figured out a way to get in the back of the room and watch even in the, towards the end of his career. Right. Content wise, it was probably somebody most people nowadays haven't heard of, but it was William Penn Patrick, Bill Patrick. Right. He was okay. the owner of Holiday Magic Cosmetics and all of our subsidiary companies. And uh, he was the one that 
sort of took me under his wing. He uh, taught me the, without knowing it, he taught me the importance of it, of effective communications. I got up in the morning, was out in San Rafael, California from Atlanta, and we were learning the scripts and so on, the top people in the company, which didn't mean much at the time, but we were the top people, Zig and and uh, several other people, 15 of us, I think. So we got up and we did our little thing and it was recorded on a Sony Betamax, reel to reel in a wooden cabinet. <laughs> and you, you, when you went to watch it, you flipped up a screen and watched in black and white what it had recorded, which I thought was amazing. And uh, so I did my little thing just because I had to, didn't think much about it. Then we went back to these rooms to start practicing our presentations and I had forgotten my notebook. So I came back up and I won't bore you with the layout, but it, the way I came into the room, Bill Patrick and the then president of the company, Fred Pape, were looking at that screen on that Sony Betamax with their back to me. They didn't know I had walked in and, uh, they, and I heard my voice. They were watching my presentation of that morning. And Bill Patrick, uh, Fred Pape said, he's good. And Bill Patrick said, I will pay more for the ability to effectively communicate than any other skill. Well, I did the moonwalk back out of the office. <laughs> I, I got love it. <laughs> yeah, I got my training manual later. I decided not to ruin this magic moment. But I just heard from the chairman of the board of the company, the 100% owner for almost, and uh, that he would pay more for effective, the ability to effectively communicate than any other skill. And I, I was already up speaking and, you know, 500 people, 1,000 people, so on. But that was the moment I said, I'm going to get good at this. This could pay really well. And uh, everything of, of big money stemmed from that moment. Uh, and rather quickly, I was making the big money. And I started, Zig and I were asking $300 to talk a speech. back then. Yeah, for a speech. Cavett uh, Robert would travel to where you were for free if you guarantee him a crowd of 100 people and let him sell his records. And for those young people listening, I did say records. Records. <laughs> Four cassette tapes. Right, so right. It, it wasn't yet big. Earl, uh, Earl Nightingale kept raising his. I remember when he got to $1,500 and I said, Earl, why are you raising your rate? He said, I'm trying to find a rate that they won't pay. He hated public speaking. Is he was that a, right? He was a studio guy. He liked to sit in the booth and be Earl Nightingale, you know, the, the voice of the big gun out of Chicago, WGN. Right. That was, that's when he was in heaven. Uh, when he worked at our seminars, I would always arrange to have a double bourbon backstage to give to him right before he went on to settle his nerves. He hated it. Oh my, so my God. Point is, we, we come from that era and then fast forward to you, me, and the way it's evolved. Uh, that sounds funny. Adjusted for inflation is really not as funny as it sounds, but that if you had said to somebody back then, uh, I'm going to make $200,000 in an hour between fees and product sales, whatever, they would have thought you were absolutely nuts. Nuts, nuts. Yeah, 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 I love it. So what What was the most, if you don't mind me asking, what was the most you've ever got paid for a speech? 
without sales, but well, just yeah. for the speech itself. Well, I, my my rate is ninety five hundred now. I ought to raise it. It's been that for twenty five years plus expenses, et cetera. So it's really where I do combos that to answer your question. Uh, I did a series of seminars, 20, 20 seminars in twenty days, ninety five hundred each. Whoa! Uh, so so the answer to your question is ninety five hundred, but multiples change that. Right. And then let me give you a, a really cute one. Uh, in Norway, a dear friend of mine brought me over. He used to work for me in uh, in the States, but brought me over. And he said, we want you to do, I think it either 10 or 11, you know, 10 talks in 11 days. Uh -huh. And he said, what's your rate? And I said, 9,500. He said, all right. And I want books to sell them. He wanted to sell the book. So at, at whatever discount rate he got for that, he bought, I think it was 40,000 copies of the, the closers, uh, part one, part two, whatever. So that added on to the almost 100,000 in speaking fees. And then, frankly, we did a great job. So the last night, they had a board of directors slash farewell to Ben Gay dinner at which they announced that they were going to give me for my continuing help with their company, 4% of the company. Well, the night they gave it to me, 4% of the company on the European stock exchange was $14 million. Wow. So the answer to your question is 14 million plus, plus. over hundred plus 40, $50,000 in book sales. That was probably my single biggest hit. But I've talked to groups of 15, 20,000. You, you tell them how to reach you and, and sign books sure. at the back of the room. They still, I did a talk this morning and I was told just before you and I got on that 6603 book orders have come in and I hadn't been off the phone, off the camera, 20 minutes. Wow. So the, as Bill Patrick said, the ability <laughs> to effectively communicate is very, very valuable. Amen. Well, you truly are a million dollar speaker and you can say that because you've made millions doing it. Yeah. But let's yeah. talk about your book for a minute, because I know that that is like the top book. So do you have a copy with you. Um, yeah, do I have up? a copy? With yes. You? Are you, <laughs> are you crazy? Up. Oh, oh, there we go. The closers. We, we got a whole bunch of them, but the Beautiful. closers part one. That's, so the best selling, that's the best selling book on selling closing ever written. We best sold selling 10, book. Good. 10 and that a half million copies when we quit counting 25 years ago. And uh, then the closers part two is frankly a better book. It's what sophisticated people really do with the information in the first book. And if we have time, I'll tell your folks where to go and get it because there's a place that has special pricing lower than I sell it and free shipping. Absolutely. At the end of this uh, podcast, yes, I want you to share that because I want to get my copy. <laughs> I want to get my <laughs> copy. Now, one of the greatest things I love about you is your ability to to storytell and to, for storytelling. And I know the greater the greats of the great speakers learn how to master storytelling. And that's how you and I met. We met many years ago, probably, I don't know, good 15 years ago. And I was sitting in an audience 
and you spoke at an event where, uh, for my mentor, Eric Lofholm, and uh, he brought you in because you're one of his mentors. And he has a great story about the book and everything like that, too. But you, you came in and like your whole speech, I remember, was story after story after story. And at one point, you were telling a story about Charles Manson. And I stopped in the audience and I went, wait, wait, I don't interrupt speakers, but I just had to, right? Right? And I went, wait, wait. And you said, yes, what? And I said, well, what was it like to be in the same room with Charles Manson? I was so fascinated. And then you shared another powerful story. So would you please share that story with our audience today? Sure. Well, in, earlier, we were talking about how to be a million-dollar speaker. One of the ways is build content, have experiences, go looking for experiences. Well, I went looking at San Quentin, uh, got the name of the warden, Red Nelson, called on him to sell him uh, a, a course called People Builders that I had made up in my mind, but it was what I was doing all the time anyway, you know, out in the real world. And uh, revolved a lot around public speaking, which is a great confidence builder. And I gave him the sales presentation. It was magnificent, I thought. And back <laughs> then, back then, I think it was I was going to charge him a thousand dollars a day, a night. Come in on a Friday night, stay to Saturday morning, do a twelve-hour sort of encounter-type seminar. And uh, he said, "I love." And he knew a little bit about me. He said, "I love it. I'm going to push it through." And uh, that'll be great. No argument about the price or anything. And I said, "What does push it through mean?" in bureaucraties and he said well I, uh, he said i've got a little power as a warden he said i think i can get this done in a couple of years i said what couple of years said, yeah it's the reason i don't plant a garden i plant seeds and then i start <laughs> yelling come on let's go let's go i watered you what do you want <laughs> you know? so i after a little back and forth and i just go and he brought a huge had his secretary bring a huge stack of papers in. he said you got to fill all these out well rv as you know uh, good salespeople are not good form filler outers right so, right, right so but between the forms and two years i thought god i've wasted my day and then <laughs> i i said to him what if we did it for free and he said we could start tonight or Ooh. this afternoon Ooh. and he, and he looked at me for an answer. I said, okay, because it was fascinating enough to get in the prison. I wanted to see what it was like. So he picked up the microphone, made an announcement. And less than an hour later, I was standing in front of my first 200 classmates, victims, as they sometimes call themselves, and teaching people builders, which I then did once a week for five years. During, I'm guessing, a couple of years into that, the... Uh, Correctional officer, the uh, Lieutenant Terry Wooster, who'd been assigned to me by the warden to clear roadblocks. I had free run of the prison, but not everybody knew that. So Lieutenant Wooster was assigned when I was there to let nothing get in my way. And uh, he, Terry came up to me and he said, Ben, I got an inmate who wants to meet you. And I said, really? Well, tell him to come to the class. He said, uh, this one can't come to the class. So I was thinking death row, uh, which I never went into. It's the only place in prison I never went. I didn't feel comfortable going in, staring into the cages of people. And back then they were actually executing people. Now death row doesn't mean anything other than the cell block you're in. But uh, uh, he said, no, this one can't come. But he said, I guarantee he's looking at us right now. And he pointed at a building called the Adjustment Center, 
where they put people who didn't qualify for death row or had been taken off of death row, but still didn't play well with others. So they were pretty much locked down all the time. He said, he's right through that window. And I suspect he's looking at us now because that's how come he knew who you were. He saw, he saw you come in every Friday night and leave every Saturday morning. I said, really? Uh, what's his name? He said, Charlie Manson. And I said, <laughs> it was a little closer to the Charlie Manson days. You know, now it's a sort of a historical footnote. We just lost him. He died, uh, I don't know, a year ago at age 80, just as he was about to get married again. I was thinking, Charlie's finally settling down. I'm so <laughs> proud of him. <laughs> That's crazy. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah. So we set up a meeting and uh, I said, where are we going to meet? He said, you're going to meet the only place he can go in his cell. So I went into the adjustment center, top tier, last cell on the end. And he was there waiting for me, looked like a little spider monkey, hands on the bars, you know, looking out like this. And uh, I, I said, hi, my name is Ben Gay, shook his hand, the guard unlocked the gate and uh, the cell door. And I went in and we spent about three hours together. And then he asked me to come back. So we did another three hours and he asked me to come back. We did another three hours. So I spent about nine hours locked up with him. Wow. Uh, one of the one of the fascinating things that stands out in my mind, I walk in, he's got a two bunk cell. The top uh, bunk is basically a bookshelf, I mean, or a shelf where he kept clothing, what little belongings he had. And then he slept on the lower bunk. On the top bunk, there was one book lying there. And so I'm, I'm a book guy. I want to know what people are up to. And uh, I, I'm looking around the cell. It was the only book there. I, so, so I pick it up. It was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, one of the great motivational books of our time and how to work with people and so on. And I said, Charlie, what an interesting book selection. He said, it's my Bible. I could not have built the Manson family without it. Whoa. Now you can go, whoa, that must be an evil book. It's not an no, evil book. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a great book. But like a gun, you can use it for good or evil positive or negative so he took uh, i'm glad dale didn't live to know that but charlie manson built the manson family around how to win friends and influence people amazing story so we uh people say well you scared he wasn't physically imposing he was a little guy he reminded me of the first time i met sammy davis jr they were about the same height small, really wide, small wiry and uh, so he wasn't a physical threat, but I, I hadn't been with him long before I thought to myself, oh, I get it. His eyes, when he looked in your eyes, it looked like he was looking in your eyes and out the back of your head. Whoa. And he, and he never broke contact. Once he locked on you, uh, I think you could probably hide under the bunk. He'd still be looking at you right in your eyes. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm really glad that I've met him now, rather successful, settled in, have already taught classes all over the world. Charlie Manson's not the biggest thing that ever happened to me versus his normal victim, a 19 year old in Haight-Ashbury wandering around trying to find themselves. Right and, right. and then you meet, I was telling my Jimmy Rucker, my business partner one time, uh, I said, Jimmy, be glad because we got into a little stuff, mainly lightweight beer and chasing girls. But nevertheless, uh, I said, be glad that drugs weren't around when we were growing up because we probably would have tried them. Uh, 
and be <laughs> glad we didn't bump into Charlie Manson. Right. Or, or else we might have been in Sharon Tate's house. It, he was extremely persuasive. And, and if you've seen the Geraldo, uh, whatever his name is, Rivera interviews with him, you know, he talks about looking death in the eye with armed guards everywhere. I was in his cell by myself. Once they knew I was in, the door was locked. They went, the guards went about their business. Uh, he was not physically imposing. Uh, but uh, if you watch Geraldo, Charlie, you picture Charlie going booga, 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 and, you know, acting crazy with a swastika. Right. He was crazy, but he wasn't that kind of crazy. Got he it. was crazy. I'm going to lock in on you and get you to do what I want crazy. Right. First time I'm with him, probably 10 minutes into the visit, we hear keys coming down the, the walkway, down the guard, whatever you call that, outside the tier. And uh, if a guard doesn't want you to know he's coming, he holds his keys so they don't rattle. This one was letting them rattle. He might have even been shaking them because there was no doubt a guard was coming. And Charlie said to me, he was sitting on his bunk, I was on a chair, he patted me on the leg and he said, excuse me one second. And he ran over to the cell door. And when the guy came by, he went, booga, 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 booga. And the guy said, hey, Charlie, how are you? And kept going. <laughs> Charlie oh, comes back. Over, Charlie comes over and sits back down to me and next to me. And he says, they love that. He said, I, I do it whenever I can. They love it. Oh, oh that's so funny. Well, that was part of his act. That's a great story and a great memory. And uh, but let's talk. You've got so many stories. Let's talk about the Apollo. Let's talk wow. about that story. Apollo astronauts, Apollo yes. 15, 16 and 17. We had I was head of the cosmetic company. Uh, we had a, a lady named Jeannie Harrington, who was a holiday girl. That's like an Avon lady. And uh her husband was the launch test supervisor of the manned space program at uh, Cape uh, Canaveral, Kennedy, whatever it was at the time. It's been back and forth. And a great guy and a brainiac. She, being Jeannie, the sweet little Southern Belle, called me one day and said, would you like to come down and see a launch? And I said, well, sure. And she said, yeah. well, Apollo, Apollo 14's taken off. You stay here at the house. I'll get Jimmy to put you in the... Uh, VIP stands, and you'll probably meet some interesting people. Well, I go down. All I wanted to see was 14 take off. That was Alan Shepard's flight. And we get down, and they're having a backyard barbecue in my honor, to which they have invited all of the active astronauts at NASA who were in town at the time and not sitting out on the tower getting ready to go. And so I met all of the, the launch and flight crews of 14, and, uh, 15, 16, 17. Wow. And somewhere during the evening, I, I'm sitting, you know, I, I don't have an autograph book, but if I'd had one, I would have been passing it around trying to get all these famous people's signatures. Well, they came to see me. Jeannie had given me such a buildup and Jim to uh, some degree. And so I'm sitting in a chair in the living room and I have nine astronauts sitting on the floor in a semicircle around me, they wanted to know what to do with their lives when it was over. Being an astronaut has an expiration date. You know, it's like a piece of fruit on the shelf. Oh, dear. In the last and the days of being a flight, uh, a test flight uh, 
pilot, test pilot, are pretty much over. That's how they got in the astronaut, astronaut core. So they're looking about what's next. You know, what do we do right. when this is over? So I started counseling them based on that. And then Jim Irwin, the commander of Apollo 15 said, Ben, you are our attitude coach. And from that moment on, uh, I didn't get paid like San Quentin. Some of my most interesting experiences, I didn't get paid. <laughs> but uh, I worked with them and their future goals. And I gave them some ideas about how to get more tax. NASA is always short on money. And uh, how to, uh, I said to the uh, administrators, Dr. Davis and Miles Ross, they were head of, the, of NASA at the time. When I met with them, I said, uh, you're always whining about money. Oh, you got a hundred astronauts on flight status. Most of them are never gonna go up and very few of them will go up in the next few minutes. Why don't we put them out on the speaking circuit telling kids and parents and so on to go tell their Congress people how important NASA is and all the benefits. And I didn't know what the benefits were, but I said, do you have a list of things of, that have come from NASA that they benefit from? And, you know, it's like Red Nelson at San Quentin, somebody buzzed somebody and they came in with a thing that looked like the New York phone book filled with, if you have a heart attack, God forbid, our, when they will begin treating you in the ambulance outside of the house long before you get to the hospital, they'll hook you up and all that stuff. That all came from NASA. Wow. You have, a, you have a digital watch, a microwave or what all came from NASA. It's just astounding. Amazing. Yeah. You have more firepower in the computer you're looking at right now than was in the launch room. Yeah. And that too. Yeah. <laughs> that was in the launch room when the Mercury program started taking off, you know, and that because we didn't have the big Russian rockets. So they had to miniaturize the United States stuff. Right. And when they miniaturized it, the spinoff started coming. I, I, I'll bet you before the week is over, there's a hundred things you will use, see, or benefit from that. If we track them came from NASA. Wow. So we started believe- going out started going out telling people. And the other thing I organized was backyard barbecues. The one I went to was accidental, come meet Ben Gay. Uh, the, uh, the others we programmed because I said, uh, Alan Shepard was on 14 and it was technically the worst shot we'd ever put up. It was virtually falling apart and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it, it was rickety by their standards. And he's on the microphone every day. Come on, guys, let's do this together. You know, let's pull, the, let's tighten all the bolts. That would be a good idea. <laughs> and so I said, I noticed that when the astronauts uh, were around at the backyard barbecue I went to, they were treated like rock stars and people were afraid to approach them. Well, they were just regular guys who picked <clears throat> being a pilot as a lesson. I said, we need to break that down because I said to Jim Irwin, Rather than them having looking at you, the kids and the parents, the people working the launch crew, as some movie star they're afraid to approach, I want the family gathered around the dinner table with the kids saying to you, the launch crew, I want saying to you, you know, you make sure you put Uncle Jim on a safe rocket. <laughs> yeah. You make him part of the family. They're not going to put, if Alan Shepard had had that relationship with the launch crew, he wouldn't have been on the microphone begging for a good flight, right. which he was. Yeah. And then talk about perfection. One last thing, we'll get off astronauts. Yeah. Uh, 
when the Saturn V B rocket took off, which is what launched the, the Apollo program before the shuttle program, if it took off and it was 99% perfect, that meant it only had 7,000 broken parts. Wow. Wow. So that's the reason they have triple redundancy. This wow. breaks, this kicks in, so on. 7,000 broken parts. That takes teamwork like you and I just don't have to deal with in the regular business world. But they right. didn't have the business world fundamentals. Mm. Wow. You know, I'd love to continue talking about that, but our time is up today. So, um, but I am in, interested in your book. So why don't you tell everyone how they can get your book, Clo The Closer 1 and 2? Here's how you do it. You go to, uh, this is my website. If you want to go there and register, I'd love to stay in touch with you. But this is where they have deals better than mine. You go to stores.ebay.com forward slash Ronzoni Books, R-O-N-Z-O-N-E Books, all one word, of course. And they have special pricing and free shipping. How do yeah. they do that? Gigi's maiden name is Ronzoni, Gigi being my wife, and she goes into my warehouse and steals books, brings them to me to sign, and then hands them to our shipping department and they mail them out. So I have to actually pay for my books. Therefore, awesome. I'd, like to, get, I'd awesome. like to get something for them. She she doesn't have that little awkward business problem of paying for things. Awesome. I love that. And I will put that website in the show notes. So to make sure that everybody gets that. So before sure. we end today... Ben, it's been such an honor to have you. I love all your storytelling. Again, if you want to be a million-dollar speaker, you've got to be a million-dollar storyteller. So yep. what would you like to leave our listeners with? The last words of wisdom for today. Uh, make a decision. I've taught goal-setting for years and complicated the sales process so I could make a living explaining how to uncomplicate it. Selling is really pretty simple. Uh, one, 85% of all the problems in selling go away if you pick a quality product or service that is competitively priced and you spend your time communicating with qualified people, qualified to buy it, religiously, geographically, financial, whatever, qualified. If you if you got the quality product, et cetera, you make a pretty good living because if it meets those criteria, uh, they'll buy a certain percent will buy in spite of you or through you or whatever is necessary to get the product because they see what's in it for them. And then you need to develop the other 15%, which has become a person of class, quality, and substance with the ability to tastefully project that effective communications. And then my goal setting, my goal setting technique is I am. It's the first thing Dr. Hill and I agreed on when we started working together. I am. I don't set goals. I claim goals. I was saying I am a millionaire long before I was. I was saying I am president of Holiday Magic Cosmetics before it ever crossed Bill Patrick's mind. In fact, the night he announced it to a big crowd at the Park Share in New York, I reached in my pocket and handed him, I still have one over on my other desk, handed him a fancy Holiday Magic Cosmetics Ben F. Gay III 
president business card. And I had just finished my I am talk. And right. uh, he, he looked at me and said, you were already president? I said, well, it took a while for you to come around. But yeah. <laughs> Amen. That's powerful. So, all right, Ben, we yeah. have to go. But thank you so much again for being on the show today and all of your brilliance, all of your wisdom. I would love to have you back if you're willing to, to come back and not charge me $9,500. <laughs> you name a time and I'll be there. All right. Excellent. We'll have you back on the show. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening in and we'll see you back here next Wednesday. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Million Dollar Speaker Podcast. Please hop on over to iTunes and leave us a review and feel free to share our channel with your friends and family. Also, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn. We would love to hear from you. And remember, you are one step closer to becoming a Million Dollar Speaker.